Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people under the shield and protection of the gospel that invites all to come before the very throne of God with boldness, knowing that we would never be turned away, that because of the finished work of Christ and his imputed righteousness, that though we are sinners and though we are completely incapable in our own strength of coming to you or in our own will choosing you, that in your sovereign divine mercy you pursued us and with that irresistible grace drew us to yourself, your sheep, who were chosen before the foundation of the world. You knew that not one of them would be lost. You came and gave your life for them, particularly in order that each one of them might come to you and be eternally preserved. Uh, there is never for any of us who have truly believed any fear of condemnation or judgment uh, that is behind us, uh, that has been separated as far as the East is from the West. And so we come to you as those who don't need to be redeemed again, but those who so often need to confess our ongoing temptation to go back to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride and possessions, the world of flesh and the devil, so powerful still in this world and so appealing to us. And so we pray, as you've instructed us to pray, that you would lead us not into temptation, uh, but that you would deliver us from evil. Uh, make our prayers uh, not just wishes, but rather arguments, importunities, brought to you with evidence for why we would desire that you would answer our prayers and fulfill our desires as long as they are in keeping with your will and for your own glory. We pray that in particular as we open your word today. Fill us through it with your spirit and a knowledge that does not lead to conceit, but that leads to humble love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be covering a rather large portion of text this morning, Romans 14, the entire chapter, and the first seven verses of Romans 15. I'll give you a moment to find your way there, Romans 14 through 15, 7. The reason why we'll be looking at such a long portion of Scripture is that it is one complete thought, and in order to understand what the author is really communicating, we need to take a step back and look at the entire argument, especially as it fits into this book of Romans, and then in the New Testament canon, and then in God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person 
esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you will no longer walk in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. The section that I just read to you is a rather significant portion of the epistle to the Romans. And what it does is it outlines a conflict 
that was going on within the church in Rome. And interestingly enough, it was written around 57 AD from the city of Corinth. And in the city of Corinth, there was a very similar problem going on. And if you were to distill it down to its essence, there was disagreement within the church and offense within the church over what you ate and what you drank and how you responded to religious holidays. And the context of both Romans 14 through 15:7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that Paul is instructing these churches to be churches that welcome their brothers and sisters in Christ, not churches that argue with brothers and sisters in Christ. And you'll notice that in chapter 14, verse 1 and verse 3, and then twice in chapter 15, verse 7, the word welcome appears. That's the theme of the section. How do we welcome other believers into this body of Christ? And the only way for a church to be truly welcoming in a biblical way, in a gospel-centered way, in a Christ-honoring, God-glorifying way, is that they actually remove the hindrance to unity, and they remove the obstacle to welcoming. And the obstacle and the hindrance to welcoming people is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness manifested in either a judgmental spirit towards people who do things that you don't do or as a despising spirit towards people who don't do what you do is the very essence of what Paul wants to root out from the church because it destroys the ability for you to welcome people in. And so this morning what I'd like to do is show you this subject of self-righteousness, some sort of four angles. I want to describe what it is, why it matters, how it ends, and who to follow. We're going to look at what it is, why it matters, how it ends, and who to follow. We're going to begin just by walking through this text this morning, and so I hope that you've got your Bibles with you or you pull one out of the pew rack in front of you because we're just going to essentially unpack this whole teaching that Paul has verse by verse and make sure we understand it more clearly. First of all, let's look at what it is. If we're going to talk about self-righteousness, and how it can so easily impact our ability to welcome people into the body of Christ, we must first define it. And so Paul begins for us by saying, as for the one who is weak in faith, he identifies the person who is the victim of self-righteousness. I notice here he says those that are weak. It's a word translated sick in other places in the New Testament, and it has to do with his faith. It has to do with his understanding of the gospel. What it means is that there are different levels of maturity along the line of development in your understanding and appreciation for the gospel. You begin as a new believer with a very limited understanding of the gospel, and you still have a tendency to hold on to your old religious practices or drag in religious practices because you think that you can somehow contain the flesh through law. It's a very tempting way to live, especially when you're an immature Christian. And here, weak is not evil, weak is just immature, weak is young, weak is fragile. And so instead of um, giving these weak people a hard time, he says, I want you to welcome them. It's a word that means to come alongside, pros lombano in the Greek. It means to call somebody close by so that you can 
do life beside them. And he says, I want you to welcome this person in, though, but not to quarrel, and not to render judgments, you could translate that, over these opinions. The word opinions is where we get the word dialogue from. Uh, it shows up in chapter 1, verse 21, translated as the word thinking. Don't bring somebody into the church just so that you have some new person to argue with. Now, there are some people who love to argue. I mean, it, they believe it's their spiritual gift. <laughs> They'll come into a church and say, I'm telling you, there's way too much unity here. I am needed. <laughs> let me tell you what my fringe theological obsession is, and let me see if you agree with me or not. And if you don't, let me pester you continually until somehow I either persuade you or I drive you crazy and you stop talking to me so I can move on to my next victim. Oh, there's a new visitor. Let's bring them in. And, and the first thing I want to ask them about is their position on eschatology. The first thing I want to ask them about is some obscure tertiary issue that isn't even clearly outlined in the scriptures. And I'm going to find out where they stand and maybe they'll join my team. And if they don't, they'll be my enemy. But that's okay because I know in fact, there are some people, I think, they genuinely believe, like they're just complainers, but they genuinely believe that their perpetual complaining is merely an indication of their discernment. I mean, they can just see things that other people can't see, and therefore they respond the way that they do. And Paul says, no, 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 you do not want to welcome people in for that purpose, to have these endless debates and discussions. For example, in verse 2, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, for all you vegetarians out there, don't worry. Doesn't mean that you are weak. In fact, there are plenty of phenomenal plant-based athletes out there today. This isn't saying that somehow being a vegetarian is an indication of weak faith. What he's saying is that within the context of the Roman church, uh, there were people there who couldn't eat meat because they believed that it would violate their conscience. Now, just because I mentioned it earlier, I do want to clarify, it's, it's not exactly talking about the same group of people every time. In Rome, you had a number of converted Jews, and those converted Jews were tempted from time to time to go back to their Judaism to think that somehow dietary restrictions really did please God, to obsess over circumcision to allow the Judaizers, who were very popular, for example, in Galatia, to try to persuade them to go back to embrace the law again. And some of them had this really deep obsession with maintaining a kosher diet, and they were having a hard time finding appropriate meat in Rome. Why? Because Rome was not a center for Judaism. It wasn't like Jerusalem. You didn't have little Jerusalem where they could go in and, you know, buy all their favorite kosher foods. They were having a very hard time there in this generally pagan city. And so what they did was they abstained from all meat because they couldn't find meat that didn't violate their conscience. Now, on the other side of the coin, the very same group of converted Jews in Corinth where Paul was writing were the ones who were trying to convince the Gentile converts that they ought to stop obsessing about eating meat sacrificed to idols. You see, the, the Jews in Corinth, they said, it doesn't matter, an idol's nothing. We serve the one true living God. Uh, we know it's irrelevant as to whether or not this meat was sacrificed to idols. Go ahead, uh, Gentile, just eat it. And the Gentile says, no, you don't understand. When I eat that meat, it brings back all of these memories. And I have a hard time doing it. I've got to step, step away from it. So it wasn't just a Jewish problem or a Gentile problem. 
In Rome, it was the Jews primarily, and in Corinth, it was primarily the Gentiles. But in both cases, you had genuine believers who were trying to honor God in the way that they lived their lives, and as a consequence, they weren't able to do what the other believers in the church were able to do. And Paul says there ought not to be division over it. So verse 3. Let the one who, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. He says it doesn't fall to you to be the one who either judges or despises. Let's take a look at those two words because they're very important. Uh, the first one that shows up is the word despise. It was tempting for the person who does eat, the person who does drink, the person who does play football on Sunday, the person who does ignore what the religious ceremonies of the day were, to essentially despise and reject, that's what the word means, and cast off the person who has these scruples about such matters. And Paul says that's unbiblical and it's ungodly. And likewise, there was another group who were very straight-laced and they didn't eat meat and they didn't drink wine and they didn't disobey the cultural norms and they really thought they were quite superior as a consequence of that and they would pass judgment on these uh, lawless Christians who were out there living loose lives. And Paul says, you too are just as in the wrong as anybody else. He says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? The word servant there isn't the word doulos, it's not the word diakonos, it's not the typical word for servant, it's actually a word from which we get the term house servant. Somebody who worked around the house, it was somebody who uh, you hired to maintain your property. And Paul says, who are you to judge that person? They don't work for you. It would be like if you went over to visit one of your friends and um, somebody was in the backyard and they were repairing their pool equipment and, and you walked over to that person and you began telling them how to do their job. And your friend, the owner of the house would come out and he would say, what are you doing? And you would say, well, I'm just telling this guy how to do his job. And he would say, it's really none of your business. I hired him. He works for me. And Paul says, who are you to go to another servant, somebody else who is a servant of the Lord, and tell them what to do? It's none of your business. Stay out of it. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's the same word over and over again. He stands. He will be stood up. He will make him stand. There are so many passages in the Bible that talk about the fact that God in his mercy, as he perseveres the saints until the very end, will make them stand. Probably most well known at the end of the little book of Jude. He will make us able to stand in his presence with great joy, blameless. You serve the Lord. You serve the Lord in your eating and drinking. You serve the Lord in your not eating and not drinking. You serve the Lord as his servant, and it's between you and the Lord. And it's not for us to judge, and it's not for us to despise. And I might add that it's the gospel that solves for both. What Paul does not say is, for those of you who despise, you need to learn to be a little more judgmental. And for those of you who are judgmental, you need to work in a little despising, and then everything will be fine. You'll be balanced. As long as you just balance out your despising with your judging, then, then you'll be a mature Christian. No, he says the answer to both of you is the gospel. The answer to both of you is to say that it is Christ who came to die for that person. It is the Holy Spirit at work in that person's conscience. 
And it is not for you to tell them whether or not they are honoring or dishonoring the Lord. In fact, if you do, you may in fact cause them to sin. So that's what it is. How about the next question? Why does it matter? Look at verse 5 down through verse 12. He says this, One person esteems a day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. My translation says esteems. It's the same word, though, for past judgment. So one person judges the days to be the same. Others that one day is better than another. What's he talking about here? Well, obviously, to the Jewish people who were in Rome, the Sabbath day was a very special day, wasn't it? I mean, all work ceased. And there are people today even in the Christian church who believe that Sunday or the Lord's Day is a special, unique day. Not by their own judgment, but by some biblical standard. And maybe some of you grew up in a church like that or in a family like that. I did. I mean, Sundays were different than other days. You know, we, we weren't allowed to do the same things that we did the rest of the week. Uh, we had to usually stay in our Sunday clothes, which was horrible. Even the whole Sunday clothes thing, you know, was big back then. You had these Sunday clothes, and you, you couldn't get out of them, because if you got out of them, then no doubt you'd be outside doing something that would get you dirty, and then you'd have to have a bath again before you got dressed to go back to evening church. And so all we were allowed to do, basically, all afternoon was sit there. And so we'd come home, we would eat, and then we would sit there. Or if, if we had uh, really um, drawn the short end of the straw, we would have to go and visit some family members and just sit in their living room instead. And in Canada, you had a room called a living room, and a living room is a place you never lived. You never went in there. It was, the, it was like the nice room with like the nice sofas, and like your grandparents had plastic over the sofa because they knew you would probably spill on it and ruin it. And you'd go in there, and you weren't allowed to touch any things because that's where mom kept the Royal Daltons that you decapitated several times before and had their heads glued back on again. Sorry, mom. Or maybe you had to go like we did over to see the great ants. I had these great ants. They were great. They were great, great ants. Three of them, my grandmother's sisters, single, lived by themselves, Thelma, Bertha, and Edith. And we would go there, and we would sit in the living room, and we weren't allowed to do anything fun, so we would just sit and talk and listen to them, and then we would go back to evening church. You get the idea. The day was special. The day was different. And there are people today that still think Sunday's special. Sunday's different. You're not allowed to do anything on Sunday. Can't go shopping on Sunday. Can't wash the car on Sunday. Can't get the grass on Sunday. Sunday's different. In those days, it was even more intense. It was the Sabbath. And he says, look, there are some who esteem a day is better than the other, and there are some who treat every day the same, and it shouldn't be an issue. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, his own mind, his own intellect. He needs to be fully assured intellectually. The one who observes the day observes it, sets his mind on it, in order to honor the Lord. You see the point he's making? The one who does that, the one who lives that way, does it because they believe it honors the Lord. And if you don't do it, that's fine, but don't judge them for what they're doing. They've got good motives, he says. You certainly don't want to judge them. Same thing here for the one who eats. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there are some who would eat the meat and there are some who would abstain from the meat and both are doing it in honor of the Lord. This is why it matters, beloved. It matters because the people that you're judging, the people that you're despising, 
if they are brothers and sisters in Christ, are doing what they're doing because they believe that it honors the Lord. And maybe they are weak. Maybe they are new to the faith, or maybe they've never matured much. They, they grew up in churches that didn't preach the gospel very clearly. Or they grew up in very cultural Christianity or, or a certain denomination that had rules. But you know what? It's none of your business to try to drag them out of that and accelerate their growth. He says, teach, love, be patient. In time, if the Lord seeks to strengthen them, he will. Or he may leave them as they are and receive their worship from them in the same way he receives the worship from you. Because in the end, verse 7, no one lives to himself, no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You're doing this for the Lord. You're not doing it for yourself. Uh, You're doing it for Him. And, And a genuine believer, and that's the context here, by the way, it's brothers we're talking about. You don't welcome unbelievers into the church. We are welcoming brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are the ones who are living and dying to the Lord. And therefore, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be the Lord of the dead and the living. What he's talking about here is the very lordship of Christ, the absolute supreme lordship of Christ over all believers. And whether or not you do something or you don't do something, it is because you are subjecting yourself to his lordship. He is the king, and you honor the king. And so for the person who eats, he honors the king by eating. He says, I love to eat. I love this food. I love this meat. I love this drink. I love this wine. I love this activity I'm doing on this special day. And I am doing this to the glory of God. And I am receiving it. And I am thanking you for it. And the one who abstains from the very same things abstains in a way to bring glory to God. And God receives them both. In fact, he says here that he is the Lord of the dead and the living, and that's caused some confusion for some people. I don't think it's that complicated. He is the Lord over those who have already died, and he is the Lord over those who live. It just means that he is Lord over all believers, always has been, always will be, whether they're alive or whether they're dead. And so it continues on here in verse 10. Why do you then pass judgment on your brother? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you look down on this person? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, this is a very important statement, isn't it? We want to know what this means. What does it mean to stand before the judgment seat of God? You say, wait a second, I remember somewhere back in Romans, I think it was chapter 8, where Paul said that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so how can you tell me that there's going to be a judgment? I can tell you that because the Bible is clear that there's a point for a man once to die and then the judgment, Hebrews 9. And the judgment is the judgment that God brings upon every person, believer or unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the judgment will come when they stand before the great white throne and the books are opened. And if their book is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the book that was written before the foundation of the world, the book containing the names of the elect, then another set of books will be opened and it has all of their works in it and they will be judged according to their works. And if they have one sin, one failure, one shortcoming from the law, they will be judged forever according to the holy righteousness of God. However, there's another judgment and it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Now this um, judgment is different. This Bema seat, by the way, is not a uniquely um, divine judgment. 
Um, it's the word used uh, to describe the seat that any person sat at who was able to render a verdict. Uh, the Bema seat, as a matter of fact, is the seat that Pilate was on when he judged Jesus, the Bema seat. The Bema seat is what Paul appealed to during his trials with Rome. The Bema seat here is a seat that is meant to indicate that when you stand before it, a judgment is given, not a condemnation necessarily. In the case of Paul, sometimes his case moved forward because there was no condemnation against him. In the case of Jesus, the mock trial led to his execution. But what we're told is that one day we'll stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the Bema seat of God. And isn't it interesting here how positive the answer is? Look at verse 11. He is quoting from Isaiah 45, 23, similar to what we read in Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Every indication that there has in the Old Testament is that of a joyful experience for the believer when they stand before the Lord. Now, this is a time where you will give an account. Yes, you will give a word. You will give a statement of yourself to God. But isn't it wonderful to know that the statement that you will give to God is a pleading of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That when you stand before him, there will be no plea on your own account. There will be no works that you bring to him. There will be no good deeds that you put forward. There is nothing that you will bring that will make some effort to persuade him that his judgment should not fall. Far be it from that. Instead, you bring one thing and one thing only, and that is the righteousness of Christ. It covers you. It's been imputed to you. Your evil deeds, past, present, future, were dealt with and killed once for all on the cross. And the holy, perfect righteousness of Christ was imputed to you at conversion. And so I would say to you, unbeliever, if you're sitting here today and you know that you have not ever done that, that today would be the day of salvation. That today is the day where, where you say to yourself, I've been trying to, to earn my way. I've been, I've been trying to be righteous enough to qualify. I mean, I've been trying to, to live up to some standard and I know that I failed. Well, then today receive the perfect righteousness of Christ freely through grace. Let him wrap that around you and take that sin, take that burden. It rolls off of you and onto him. He takes it and settles it once and for all. He throws it into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is what? More. You say, well, I don't really have that problem because I don't try to live up to some religious standard. I'm not religious. I'm kind of my own man. I'm my own woman, and I'm going to stand before the Lord, and we'll work out a deal because I live by my own rules. Francis Schaeffer, uh, the great philosopher, has an interesting illustration in one of his books about this. He says everyone is walking around with this invisible tape recorder around their neck. And when you stand before the Lord in the judgment one day, he's going to reach down, and he's going to take that tape recorder out and you're not even going to realize it was there the whole time. And he says, that's okay, I'm not going to judge you by the law because I didn't give you the law. I'm only going to judge you by your own standard, and he is going to play back that tape recorder. And every time you held somebody to a standard that you never held yourself, that's going to be enough to condemn you. That's what Romans 2 taught us. So, 
either you're trying to earn your salvation through works or you're trying to earn your salvation because of your own moral character, but either way, it's going to fail. And either way, there's going to be a need for you to plead somebody else's righteousness. And that's where the gospel comes in. That's what solves it. That's why before the very Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, which, by the way, shows up again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you will be able to stand. Why? Because it is his righteousness. Now, you might say to me, well, listen, what about the idea that my deeds are going to be judged? What about the rewards? What about the crowns that I'm supposed to earn? What about the jewels? I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't teach that. You might have been taught that as a kid growing up. You might have been part of programs that give you little awards for doing things, but the reality is it's a bad way to teach kids about how the Lord evaluates. He never evaluates based on anything that you bring to the table. It's only what his son has done, his perfect, active, and passive righteousness imputed to you. Now, in the context of deeds, though, there is something that might still need to be clarified because Paul uses this to bolster his argument that we ought not to judge each other's deeds. And so he says, whatever you've done, whether good or evil, it will be evaluated one day, but it will be evaluated by God, your Lord, not by each other. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Aren't you, aren't you so grateful that you don't have to give an account to yourself to any other person? Aren't you grateful that it's not anyone else's judgment that matters? I love how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 to the, to the Corinthians, he says, look, I mean, it's a, it's a very small thing to me what, what you all think of me. He wasn't being arrogant. He was just saying, it really doesn't matter how you judge me in my ministry. He says, look, I don't even judge myself. I mean, I don't know of anything. I, my conscience isn't bothering me. I don't know of anything I'm doing wrong, but I'm sure I'm doing something wrong because I'm not perfect. But my own conscience doesn't even judge me. At the end of the day, it's the Lord is going to judge me. And thankfully, because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I have no fear of condemnation. So when it comes to self-righteousness, that's what it is. That's why it matters. Number three, how does it end? How do we get rid of it? Verse 13, therefore, as Paul sort of transitions in his argument, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, and again, it's the same word for pass judgment. He just, the translators are using different words, so it doesn't sound repetitive, although repetitive would be helpful because you'd see that's what Paul's doing. He's repeating his word. But he says, rather, never pass judgment by putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. We need to overcome this by getting rid of hindrances, by getting rid of anything that would cause our brother to stumble. The word hindrance, by the way, is a word that shows up just a little bit later there in chapter 16 and verse 17. You can take a look at that real quick. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. That's the same word. Create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. The way that you overcome self-righteousness in a church and cause it to be a welcoming place for believers, no matter how mature they are in Christ, is to avoid the people who cause division. And they cause division by putting stumbling blocks and hindrances in front of people. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. He renders a verdict here. He says, listen, we're not even going to have the debate about whether or not it's clean or unclean. I am telling you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's clean. He renders the verdict. He says, okay. And all the strong Christians go, I knew it. No. All the strong Christians say, we understand. 
But Paul is immediately careful to say, as much as I would tell you that nothing is unclean, notice it, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, this is very disturbing to some believers who are very analytical and objective. They think, well, wait a minute, either it's clean or it's unclean, Paul. I don't like this whole area where I've got to have some discernment. I don't like discernment. I like rules. Just tell me. I don't want to have to think. You just tell me. Is it right or is it wrong to eat the meat sacrificed to idols? Is it right or is it wrong to eat the meat in the meat market? Is it right or wrong to drink wine and play football on Sunday? Is it right or wrong? I just need an answer. And, and Paul doesn't give it. What he says is to get along. I love um, Philippians chapter 4. This just came to mind, but I figured I'd mention it. Philippians chapter 4. Paul has this um, argument going on in the church in Philippi, which was otherwise a really sweet church. But there are these two women who are just, you know, stinking up the place because they can't get along. And so he talks to Iodia, which means prosperous, and Syntyche, which means pleasant. So he tells, you know, Miss Prosperous and Miss Pleasant that they need to get along. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Now, we don't know what they were arguing about, but he does not say Iodia was right or Syntyche was right. He says it's not about right or wrong. It's about agreeing in the Lord, having the same mind, which is exactly what he says back over in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, a mind of humility. So the answer here is humility. If somebody thinks it's unclean, it's unclean for them. 4, verse 15 if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You're not walking in love. If you put something out in front of your brother and you know it causes him to stumble, that's not loving. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in that parallel passage, Paul contrasts knowledge with love. He says, some of you have a lot of knowledge. You know the gospel. You know that you have freedom in Christ. You have a lot of knowledge, but you're going out leading out with your knowledge, not leading out with your love. And so you're showing up in the synagogue, carrying around a pork chop, being like, this is great. What's the matter with you people? Why don't you just join me? That's not love. That's not maturity. That's not showing them that you understand and that you've grown in your knowledge of the gospel and you know you're free in Christ to do whatever you want to do. And that's taking your knowledge and showing it's puffed you up and made you conceited. And Paul says that's unloving. In fact, by what you eat, Verse 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's strong language, isn't it? Destroying the work that Christ has done in this person's life. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. It's the word blaspheme. Even within the church and certainly in the outside world, people are going to blaspheme us and blaspheme God for the way we treat one another if we take our liberty and we hurt one another with it. The way this ends is by being humble and loving, not by pushing our knowledge onto others. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but, strong contrast, of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does a healthy church look like? A healthy church is described and defined as one that is filled with 
Justified believers who know their peace is with God and their joy is in the Holy Spirit as he fills them in such a way that they are able to humbly love one another. Because whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. That word serves there is the word doulos. It's the the slave, right? The one who is owned. He says, whoever is owned by Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Men find him pleasing. God finds him faithful. So then, purpose clause, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's the goal. The goal is peace. The goal is upbuilding, edification, teaching one another, maturing one another through the proclamation of the gospel. That's our mission statement here at our church. Our church is a welcoming church because it's a place where people can be gently and lovingly and patiently and humbly led to maturity in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, not by wedging truth and knowledge into relationships and causing division before people are ready. Verse 20 says then, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Paul acknowledges that everything is indeed clean. Once again, he's repeating himself, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This reminds me of Galatians chapter 2. Turn over a few pages in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul makes a very famous confrontation. Paul is not the least bit impressed by all of the religious elite in Jerusalem. He is not at all impressed by celebrity pastors. Paul would not be in line trying to shake hands with and have his Bible signed by celebrity pastors guarded behind velvet ropes. If he were at a conference today, he wouldn't care doesn't matter how many books you've written or anything else. He would not have been impressed by you one bit. But Paul goes up there to meet with these guys because they're well known and because he has to prove that his gospel is a true gospel. And so after he defends himself before them and explains what he is, he goes on to say he's not afraid to confront them when they need it. And so look down at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11 where he says, but when Cephas, who is Peter, I came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Not condemned in the sense of unsaved, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but condemned in the way that Paul's going to use it here in Romans, meaning self-condemned, he was violating his own conscience. And so Paul's not afraid to get in Peter's grill, and he gets right up there in his face and he says, you're wrong. For before certain men came from James, and this is the Apostle James, James was kind of the fundamentalist, James was like the ultra-conservative, James was the one that was very influenced by, by the Jews, he himself was a gospel believer, but some of his followers had a very intense loyalty to the Judaism and the Jewish system. They come from James to Antioch, and when they arrived, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was having a normal time enjoying the liberty that he has in the gospel. He was eating and drinking and doing stuff on the Sabbath and had no problem with it. His conscience wasn't violated at all because he knew that nothing was unclean. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing them. Who's the circumcision party? These are the Jews that want to make everyone who's in Christ take on the Jewish traditions. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, 
You see, when a leader falls, it's easy for other people to fall. And so when he became a hypocrite, when, when he started going back to Judaism, all the people that were following him started doing that as well. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Those are strong words, aren't they? Strong words to talk about the apostle Peter. This was Peter. Peter's a hypocrite. Peter led people astray because he stopped eating and drinking and doing stuff on the Sabbath out of fear when the fundamentalists arrived. Paul calls him out. I bet he stopped listening to rock music too because you know that's from the devil. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, this was like a public rebuke. He didn't take him aside privately. He did it in front of everybody because Peter was guilty in front of everybody. And he says to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that is how he lived normally, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see how you are undermining and corrupting the gospel? So it's a major issue. He says, everything is indeed clean, back to verse 20 of Romans 14, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If you're going to live in a community where there are people that have different views than you do, you need to be careful not to cause them to stumble. When you are in close proximity to other believers who have differing perspectives on what is right and wrong and what they can do and can't do, uh, when you are in a church that has a healthy diversity of people with different levels of maturity, then you as the mature one, the strong one, need to be careful that you're not flaunting your liberty in a context where you can cause your brother to stumble. Now, please note this. Causing your brother to stumble is not the same as offending your brother because he catches you doing something. Causing your brother to stumble is not the same as offending your brother because he catches you doing something. Causing your brother to stumble means you lure and persuade your brother who does not have a conscience who can handle it yet to do something that violates his conscience, and in that way, he sins. That's what it means to cause him to stumble, to trip him, to just stick your foot out and trip him. Well, that's funny. Here he is, he can barely walk, and you just stick your foot out there and trip him. That's what it means to stumble. He says he's not ready for this yet. He's not mature enough yet. He doesn't get it. He comes from a different context. He may, he may never get to the point where he can do what you're doing, and yet you're dragging him into it and making him feel like he's somehow a lower-class Christian because he's not able to do what you're doing and receive it with joy. That's causing your brother to stumble, and that's what you can't have. Those of us who are strong, Keep it between you and the Lord. Enjoy that thing that you enjoy, but enjoy it either with other believers who enjoy it and are strong, or enjoy it between yourself and the Lord and give thanks to Him for it. But don't try to drag people in who aren't ready. That's not loving. 
Blessed is the one, and it's word happy, by the way. I think some translations translate it happy. Happy is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So he says, don't make that person do it, because when they stumble, what they've done is that they have condemned themselves. Now their judgment of others is being turned inwardly, and now they're judging themselves, and they stand condemned in their own eyes, in their own conscience, and that is not a happy place to be. Because what they have done didn't come from faith, but it came from pressure. And what they have done didn't come because they know it to be true, but because you were able to persuade them by Christian peer pressure to do something that their conscience was not ready to do yet. And as a result, they judge themselves. Now, that's what it is. That's why it matters. It's how it ends. But finally, who do we follow? Let's look at chapter 15, 1 through 7. Now Paul turns and he says we. He's putting himself in this category, this camp. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We literally are obligated by God to bear with those who need bearing with. We have to carry the burdens of the burdensome. We can't have a church that simply says, you're not allowed to be here unless you line up with everything that we believe about these secondary issues. And there are some very judgmental churches who say you can't be a part of this church unless you sign off on this agreement that you're not going to do all of these things. And there are some other types of churches that uh, say you're not really going to be welcome here unless you do everything that we do. He says a healthy church, a normal church that reflects the glory of the diversity of souls saved by the gospel of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, gender, age, socioeconomic status, is that you will have differences among you, and you will have to learn how to live together in love, to please one another and not please yourself. And so, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. You see, Christ says, Borrowing from Psalm 69.9, if you want to jot that down, Psalm 69.9, he borrows from that psalm and he says, yes, that is what I experience. I experience the reproach of both groups, those who despise and those who judge. And I say that because in Matthew chapter 11, it says something just so interesting. Matthew 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says in verse 16 of Matthew 11, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Jesus says these religious leaders and these people are like little kids teasing me for not going along with what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to dance, and I didn't dance. They wanted me to mourn, and I didn't mourn. They wanted me to be happy when they wanted to be happy, and I wasn't happy. And they wanted me to be unhappy when they were unhappy, but I was happy. I ruined their game. And he says, why? Because verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. But the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking. 
And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. What that means is that in the end, the deeds will be evaluated by wisdom, the deeds will be evaluated by God. But he says to them, I can't win. John the Baptist came and he didn't eat or drink and they said he was demon-possessed and I came and I ate and I drank and I was with all these people that they thought were just wicked sinners that didn't deserve to be around the Messiah and they said I was a glutton and a drunkard. I can't win. You see, Jesus bore the shame of both those who judge and those who despise. And that's why as we follow him, we follow one who's gone before us. We don't have to worry about him not being able to empathize with what we deal with because he's born at all. You see, in the gospel, we have a perfect example of one who lived out his whole life perfectly in the face of judgment, perfectly in the face of being despised, so much so that he even stood before the Bema seat of Pilate and was condemned a criminal, though he was a holy man, and died at the hands of wicked men in order that he might rise again to give his righteousness to wicked men who put their faith in him. He's done it all for us. Now, these things in the Old Testament are given to us, by the way, he's referring to that psalm. Verse 4 is looking back to verse 3. For whatever was written, like Psalm 69.9, was written in former days for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope, hope that we can make it through, hope that we'll be able one day to stand before his glorious, holy throne, blameless, with great joy. And so, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He's talking to the church. As a result of this, because of the gospel, because of the encouragement, because of the endurance that we can have because of the power of the Spirit of God and the example of Christ, because of that, may we have harmony with one another. And beloved, don't you notice that he says harmony and not unison? He doesn't say everyone sing exactly the same notes. When we were led today in worship and song, there were different instruments playing different notes, but it all blended together in harmony. You see, harmony is different people singing the same music. Unison is just chanting the same thing, and that isn't what Paul has in mind for the church. Please, don't find a church that's just like you, filled with people just like you. Imagine a church filled with people just like you. They all look like you, talk like you, dress like you, act like you, eat like you, drink like you, play like you, teach like you, and it's you, you, you. It's just this big cloning of you. And for some of you, you're like, whew, where's that church? I'm in. <laughs> Not me. I wouldn't want to be there. Yeah, everybody would want to be preaching every week. It'd be a mess. I want to be in a place where I can learn from other believers. I, I want to see that there are some who, who come from a different context and a background. There, there are some who have different opinions and different convictions. And we learn from one another, and we grow, and we, we, we manifest to the world a picture of the harmony of the gospel, because you remember in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection, when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, that there will be some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they'll be living together in perfect harmony on this earth, manifesting everything that will never be accomplished through sinful men today. Let us model that in the church ahead of time. And in so doing, verse 6, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, we can all sing together without singing the same note. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If we can work to eliminate self-righteousness, then we can be open to the welcoming spirit that is instructed here. We're going to be able to welcome one another. And welcoming one another doesn't mean accepting sin. It doesn't mean that we never render a verdict. It doesn't mean that we never call people to repentance. But what it means is that you, you welcome people in, not for the sake of arguing and debating about issues that are not relevant to the gospel. And you do so as Christ has welcomed you. He welcomed us in. In fact, we have the joy of knowing that he is going to be one with us as he is one with his Father and the Spirit, and for all eternity we'll enjoy him like that forever. And it will all work together for his glory. And if we really believe that the church exists to bring glory to God, then we'll be a church that learns how to live in harmony together by welcoming one another, not to argue, judge, or despise, but to show the kind of love that should be the result of knowledge as opposed to the conceit that puffs up. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for this uh, lesson, this rather long section of text that we worked through this morning. Father, I just thank you for the patience and the attention of our flock today, for the joy that it is to be a pastor here on this staff as we, by your grace, serve as under-shepherds of you, our great shepherd, endeavoring to love and serve in a way that glorifies you. May this church, may this body be one that is set apart in the eyes of each other and even the world as a place of harmony where even those who disagree can live together in peace and joy and righteousness, not judging or despising because of all that you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.